Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. If you do the same as everyone else, you're going to have the same as everyone else. To have more, you've got to prepare to have more. Buy that nicer watch because it makes you feel good. At what point in your life did you realize, oh, I could become a millionaire? Mark Tilbury is a popular face in the finance side of YouTube, the self-made millionaire who came from nothing. If you're worth more money, ask for more money. In my eyes, there's three types of people in this world. There are the drifters, there are the dreamers, and there's the doers. What do you think are the three best side hustles that anyone can start? Well, I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You might not know this, but I'm actually part French. I've always thought one day I'll learn French, but life gets in the way and I never seem to have time. If you're in the same position, Rosetta Stone might be perfect for you. It helps you to reach your language goals efficiently without being too demanding. Lessons are as short as 10 minutes, so you can learn between meetings, classes, and commutes. Rosetta Stone has so many cool features. Their voice recognition feature is really neat. It uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers and then give you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words so that you can really hone your pronunciations. And because I'm a Rosetta Stone partner, you can get over 50% off a lifetime subscription. Usually $3.99, you pay just $1.49. Their lifetime subscription means that you never have to pay renewal fees. You can learn multiple languages at your own pace. Start, stop, and review at your convenience. Visit erica.com slash Rosetta Stone. Download the app and immerse yourself in a new language. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. Again, that's erica.com slash Rosetta Stone, Erica with a K. What was your relationship with money like growing up? I never really had a lot of money. And I think sometimes that's quite a good thing if you want to make it in life. Um, If you got it too easy... You know, you don't have to fight, do you? You don't have to fight at all. And I had a hobby of uh, flying model aeroplanes, and I could never afford the the planes I wanted. So I always had the cast-offs from the members of the club. So my models would be made of a wing from one aeroplane, a tailplane from another, and a fuselage from another. But I got it to work, you know, and that was uh, 
we were pretty poor. We weren't baseline, if you know what I mean, but we were pretty poor. But it, it made me look for opportunities. Do you remember what your parents taught you about money? Were they always saying you should save more? Did they talk about investing at all? My dad was always very keen on property for, you know, buying your house, as it were. But that was as far as it went. You know, there was no more than that. They were very much save your money in your building society stroke bank, let it mature over time, um, which, as you know and I know, it just devalues during that period. So none of them were into investing. In fact, my my granddad was the only person that ever owned a share in a company or a stock in a company, and it was a crisp company, um, potato chips, I should say. <laughs> and uh, it was like, wow, he's got stocks in a company. And he was the only one. It was uh, really quite strange. So it was hard when all that information started coming my way as to understanding what it was all about because certainly I don't think um, my parents had any investment knowledge at all, none at all. Now, obviously, you're this multimillionaire. You have multiple businesses. At what point in your life did you realize, oh, I could become a millionaire? Well, I was uh, somewhat stuck, shall we say. I, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm an average guy absolutely average guy. I left school when I was 16, which is pretty young. You know, you had that chance to do that when uh, when I was young. So I thought, no, I'll, I'll get out. I'll do a nine-to-five job. I had five jobs I could have gone for. Um, so I selected the one I really wanted, which was become a carpenter and joiner. I did particularly all right, you know, at, at, at that trade. Um, I got leadership awards, did very well. But I got put onto some jobs that were very repetitive and they were going to carry on for years and years. So I had the discussion with my boss. I said, look, you know, I need to do these better jobs. I've um, come out of the college side of the apprenticeship with, you know, flying colours. You know, I should be on these big staircases, these multi-million pound jobs. But he wanted me to make these wooden trash cans. So I took him outside and I said, you know, like, when's this going to stop? He said, it's not you know, you're going to be doing this the rest of your life. Or it felt like the rest of my life. It was a five-year contract with Walmart, which is Asda in the UK. And I thought, you know, I, I can't do this. I said, no, this is not happening. It's not happening. I need to move forward. I've seen really nice buildings, nice houses. I've worked on some nice projects. I've asked people how I can get ahead. And, you know, they're normal people. They've got ahead. Why can't I? And that was the point where I said, that's the road I'm going to take. I want to own the house I walked past as a kid that was a multi-million pound house. That's the house I want, or to the value of that house. And that's been a driving force probably all my life. So what was your next move after you quit that job? Well, the next move was I didn't actually quit immediately. Um, I had to set up a little plan in place. And I did um, a business plan for a shop I wanted to start called Model World. And I discussed it a lot along the way with a friend of mine who I worked for part-time in a model shop. And uh, he stole the ideas and did it himself. He actually called it Model World as well. And the name of the shop was from a BBC television programme when I was a kid. I, and I'd had it in my head all that time. If I ever did a model shop, it would be called Model World. And uh, obviously I was a bit heartbroken, but I wasn't ready. And a lot of people say successful people are lucky. And I say, you know, at the end of the day, preparation you know, makes luck, doesn't it? That's the thing. You know, so if you prepare yourself and you're ready to take advantage of that luck when it comes along, it's not really luck because you've worked very, very hard. And that's what I tried to do. At the time, I wasn't ready. Fortunately, he 
didn't really do very well with that shop and basically the shop was failing uh, but I knew why so I thought you know I can take all the lessons I've learned and uh, make it work and be a successful business which I did when he said that's it I've had enough I'm going to sell it so I bought it you bought it from him yeah wow so what was it at the time that you said you weren't ready what was the preparation that it took for you to get to a stage where you were ready to take that on well, I'm a firm believer that you should work for lots of people, lots of people, um, and not just work for them. And none of this um, sort of quiet quitting. It, you know, why, why would you want to quiet quit? Get yourself in a job, learn how it works, learn how the whole business works. The smaller the business, the, the easier it is to understand how that business works. So if it's got four members of staff, between those four members of staff, you've only got to ask them and you'll know how that business works. Ten people, you can still do it as well. The amount of knowledge you can accrue by working. Yeah, so you're working to learn rather than just to earn. And the amount of knowledge you can accrue in that time is absolutely huge, you know, if that's what you want to do. You know, you could pay for courses. Of course you could. You could go all over the place and spend an absolute fortune learning about business. You go to university, which is a little bit of a niggle of mine, <laughs> as you know, probably. And, you know, but this is real life. So if you work for five different companies and understand how those companies work, it's not just about taking notes of what they do well. It's also about taking notes of what they do bad because business is all about fixing problems. You know, if you want to fix problems, you're going to make money. If you fix big problems, you're going to make big money. So look at the problem, see what you can sort and make better. And by working for sure in the model shop, um, I saw all the problems with not meeting customer requirements, letting people down, not having the right products. You know, there are major things that you can improve on the minute you open your own business. So that's what I did. And also with carpentry and joinery, you, you're learning sales skills, you're learning skills with your hands. So when I came to do other shops, I was able to fit those shops out myself. And you're talking $100,000 to fit out a decent shop probably cost me in materials $15,000. So major savings off the bottom end when you're starting businesses. So very helpful. And you feel like you wouldn't have had the success that you have now if you hadn't spent a few years working for people first and seeing the ins and outs of their business. Yeah, 100%. I think it's very important to, to work for other people and then also to start up your little side hustles because if you start up your side hustles, then you're, you're actually hands-on learning about business while you're being secure within your own job. And if you can generate side hustle money, then that's where you can start thinking about investing because it becomes money you don't need. So that's a good situation to be in. What do you think are the three best side hustles that anyone can start? Well, I mean, my side hustles were working part-time for another model shop. Also, buying and flipping cars was very good for me. Very, very good. Because I like cars anyway. And I'd always pick a car that I would continue to drive if I couldn't sell it. So I wasn't too worried if it sold or not. I actually was quite lucky because I stumbled upon this car dealership and we were just looking around as you do as kids. And I said, oh, they got all these old cars out of the back. I wonder what that's about. So I thought, well, I'll go and ask. And I said, what are the old cars out of the back for? You know, they, they've not got any price on it. He said, oh, I can't get rid of them. You know, I don't want to put them on the forecourt because it will downgrade all the good-looking cars out there. So I said, well, can I buy them? And he said, of course you can. What, what do you want to pay? And it was like that, literally, what do you want to pay? <laughs> and I always thought a nice amount of profit on something is to double your money. So I'd generally pay 
the equivalent of $300, and I'd sell them for the equivalent of $600. This was at the time, and we're talking 40 years ago That's now. a good side hustle. Yeah, it worked <laughs> very, very well. And it's enjoyable as well because you enjoy the product. And uh, I also did, um, I was teaching people to fly radar-controlled helicopters as well, which doesn't sound that much, but at the time that was a skill that very few people had, and I'd managed, however, to master it. And people would pay me quite a lot of money to do that. And also I would notice problems with their models. I'd say, oh, this model's not too good. You need this, you need that. And they'd say, well, can you take it away and bring it back next week and do all of that for me? So, of course, you could charge them for all that expertise, for the parts, for a bit more labour. But the problem comes when you sell all your time. And I got to a stage where I totally sold all my time. I didn't have another half an hour to spare. And um, that's where you get capped you know, it doesn't matter how clever you are, what business you do. You know, if you could be a doctor, can't you? You can earn a lot of money, but eventually your hours are capped. That's all you can earn. So yeah. I hit that pretty early. No, I came to that realization when I quit my law firm. And I was, my one condition was that I wanted to stop trading my time for money. Because if you're trading your time for money, you are capped literally at 24 hours that you can offer per day. And you shouldn't work 24 hours a day. So that's when I really got into this idea of passive income. And I thought, yeah. oh my gosh, with passive income, you don't have to trade your time for money. You're, you're normally putting either money up front or time up front. And if it's time up front, it won't come back to you instantly. Most passive income streams will take months and months to build. But then when you start reaping the benefits, that's the definition of passive income. You're not trading your time for money. I remember being very, very excited about it and wanting to test out all these passive income streams to see if they were very, if they were real or scammy. Mm. Well, most time passive income schemes, by the time they start reaping you the benefits, you can actually be moving on to the next one that takes the time because it's at that point that the money starts coming in for it and then it will continue to come in for it. So you then start working on the next one. But of course, we're in a culture now of people being very impatient very impatient and wanting everything now, now. Obviously, the TikTok culture. I'm not sure you're aware of TikTok. Um, but <laughs> I think I've it's, heard uh, of it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, 15 seconds, 15 seconds. And that's the, you've got to get so much information crammed into that 15 seconds or 30 seconds. Otherwise, people take no notice. And, and I don't think a lot of people are patient enough with passive income ideas. So they'll say, that's a bit scammy. That didn't work. It didn't work for me. So it must be rubbish. But if you've got patience, long term, you're, you're generally always going to do all right, I think, whether it's investing, whether it's, you know, using your time to create a, a digital product, for example. I mean, a digital product could take you two, three, four, five years. But when it's there and everyone wants it, it's payday, isn't it? Yeah. No, and I feel like actually expectations about passive income that are created on TikTok and Instagram and these videos that you see are so distorted. Like they give you this perception, especially if they're trying to sell you the dream, they give you this perception that, oh my gosh, buy my course and you're going to learn how to make passive income tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so then when people actually try it, they're like, wait, this is taking longer. My first true passive income stream was digital templates. So... I took legal documents that anyone frequently needs. So business owners, for example, will always need privacy policy, terms and conditions, and disclaimer for their website. So I made these templates, and then I sold them online. And it took a while to bring traffic to it, but now those templates make me thousands of dollars every month passively. Mm. 
That's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, but it doesn't, it's not instant. <laughs> like it's not, it doesn't happen instantly. And I feel like yeah. there's this perception online that, oh, passive income is going to be, you start your product and then you sell it tomorrow and that's immediately passive income. Yeah, and a lot of people think that going and investing in the stock market is going to be instant money. You're not going to get rich fast by investing in the stock market. That's your slow money. That comes over time, gradually, gradually. Yeah, the magic of compound interest, just let it take its time. But you need a business on the side of that that will generate you your fast income. And my policy was always to invest 50% of my profits and put 50% back into the business because the business was generating that fast money. We needed somewhere for that fast money to go, which is obviously the investing side of things, whether that be real estate, stocks and shares, you know, all that sort of thing. But you need that business driving that fast cash. So as long as you've got that pumping away in the background, that's a great thing. When people come to you and say, Mark, I have $1,000 to invest. How do I start investing? What's your typical answer to them? Well, I can't give advice on that. I'm a normal guy, not a financial advisor. I might well say what I would do. And generally speaking, if you've got $1,000, you're probably better to spend that on educating yourself with various different things. So I'm very keen on books. I'm not a great book reader, but I've read a lot of books. I find I do struggle. You know, I find it hard. But of course, now with audio and, you know, all that sort of thing and YouTube, you can learn so much much but sometimes you've just got to invest i mean if you wanted to become a plumber for example you may well have to pay for a thousand dollar course to become a plumber but over the course of a year that's going to six sixty x isn't it you know no problem at all so it's all about investing in yourself so with a thousand dollars you know if you really want to get a return and the best return is you you know because you can build that skill stack and every time you add a skill to your stack, you're making yourself more and more unique. But you want to try and be an expert at what you do as well. So, you know, try and bolt on um, different skills that help that skill stack. I like that. Mm. Okay, what about then $10,000? Is it still to invest in yourself? <laughs> well, I think it gets to the point where once you've got your emergency fund, I mean, you're, you're, you're way past that with $10,000. You've got enough to be able to, be educating yourself on a regular basis. And you've got to keep repeating that cycle as well. You know, it's not just about, well, I bought this book and I'm going to do everything in this. You've got to keep, you know, buying more, looking at more, keep stacking those skills. I would say probably in the States, what you need, probably $6,000 is probably a good emergency fund. Now, I know I harp on about it and I know a lot of other people harp on about it, but if I hadn't have had an emergency fund, I would have been in trouble. I, there's no way I could be where I am now. The reason it's so good is because once you start investing and you start um, a business, you don't want to be sucking money back out of those, cutting those investments, cutting that business to grab money for emergencies that are happening in your life. So you need those to keep growing. That's what your emergency fund is. And once you've saved up a fund of, say, 6000 for example, when your engine blows up on your car and it costs you a couple of thousand dollars or the washing machine blows up and it costs you a thousand dollars, you've got the money there to pay for it. But because you've saved that fund, it's very easy to save it back. When you're going into debt, you've got a big issue because that item you've had to buy and replace has cost you a lot more than you actually agreed to pay for it. And I always see um, debt a bit like, um, this is going to be a strange analogy for you, a bit like a model train set. Okay, so imagine you had three pieces of circular track. 
The train's set at dead speed because that's the amount of money you're earning. It's a dead speed. It's not going up, it's not going down. You're not side hustling, you're not doing anything. It's a dead speed. And you've taken a piece of track, put it on, and the train gets onto it. You get another piece of track. By the time you've put it on, the train's onto that bit of track, and so on and so on and so on. As soon as you take out a loan, that next bit of track, which is your wage, is slightly shorter. So you put it on, and you have to do it even quicker. You take out another loan, it's slightly shorter. Before you know it, the train's derailed. And that's your life. It's derailed at that point. You're in the trap. How are you going to get out of that? Very difficult. Very difficult. And I feel for people in that position very much because it's very, very hard to do. So emergency fund, it is, it is the lifesaver. And I don't know anyone in my group of rich friends that didn't or still does have a fund that, that supports them. We all know that the holidays are the busiest travel period of the year. Whether you're heading to Thanksgiving or just grabbing dinner with friends, transportation should be the least of your troubles. Just recently, I was heading to the airport back home and needed a ride and fast. I ordered one in seconds using the Curb app. Available nationwide, Curb makes transportation affordable and easy. Say goodbye to those crazy rideshare prices and get to your next event without breaking the bank. I've compared the cost of catching a Curb versus catching another rideshare app like Lyft, and Curb almost always comes out cheaper from what I've seen. With Curb, you can get a ride right away or schedule in advance. Simply enter your destination on the app, choose your ride with taxi and other ride options available, and pay automatically once your trip is complete. And just for my listeners, we're giving you $10 off your first eHail ride booked on the Curb app with code ERICA. One more time, that's $10 off with code ERICA. And remember, it's ERICA with a K. I'll also put the link in the show notes for you. And now back to the episode. What do you think is the best way to save if you're saving for that emergency fund? Uh, personally, I would just save in a bank. Easy access money, really easy. I know you're not going to get good return on it. I know it's going to lose value over time, but it's a small amount of money in the real scheme of where you're trying to get to. So I would literally have that money on tap all the time and forget that I could grow it to more because I'm going to do that with the other money I earn. What about people that say, though, Mark, I'm trying my hardest to save money, but it just seems like I'm always living paycheck to paycheck and I can never make a dent on my savings? Earn more. It's quite simple. It might be hard in the, in the moment to, to be able to do that. But at the end of the day, I think if you're working for someone, they're willing to pay you X amount of money, say $1,000. Now, the reason they're willing to pay you $1,000 is because you generate for that company two, $3,000. You must do, otherwise they can't afford to pay you a wage. So if you're worth more money, ask for more money. The chances are they're either going to say yes or no. Well, they're going to say one <laughs> or the other, aren't they? So if they say no and you know your value is higher, go and get that value somewhere else. If they say yes, then woohoo, you've got more money. But also, you, most people are, you know, they have more time than they think, a lot more time than they think. And at that point, you know, the side hustles come in, which we talked about earlier. You know, everyone has got some time they can put to something. I've always thought, um, I mean, I don't drink. I do enjoy the environment of a bar at times. It's quite nice, and particularly if there's a sports event on. Um, but some people drink on a fairly regular basis. And I've always thought one of the greatest side hustles for somebody who likes socialising that way is getting behind the bar. You know, one, you're getting paid, you're still getting social, and you're getting tips. <laughs> 
And that's a great night out, isn't it? So why not do that? And there's thousands of jobs that you could choose from that will get you ahead. And it's all about earning that bit of extra money and on a day that you're not going to be spending any money. I was actually a bartender in law school. So my first year of law school to pay for books and everything, I would every night, like 10 p.m., go to the bar and then work there till 2 or 3 a.m. So you had the social experience and earned. Yeah. <laughs> perfect, isn't it? Absolutely perfect. It wasn't good for my studies. So I remember after my first year, I quit bartending. But <laughs> It didn't hold you back, though, did it? No, it was fun. It was fun while I was there. So... That first step, I think, is so important. What you said is getting that emergency fund saved up. What do you think then is the next step people should be focused on once they are able to save that full emergency fund? Uh, well, certainly in the UK, uh, we have um, a savings scheme called an ISA, which is very similar to the Roth IRA in the States. I would personally look start looking at that route because when you're young, in your 20s, you, know, you are worth so much more than you think. Every dollar in your pocket by the time you get to 60, it's worth 20, 25, you know. So if you think about it like that, you know, you're less likely to want to give it away and you're more likely to want to store it. I would personally say that getting into paying a regular amount into an index fund via a Roth IRA or via an ISA is one of the best things you can do. And if you lock it on a direct debit even better. Because you forget about the money that's going out every month. You, you know, you get used to, if you're earning, again, $2,000 a month, you know, put 200 into the ISA. You forget about it. I was taught as a youngster the 10% rule and just put 10% away. If you do it all the time, you don't even know it's gone, you know, and that builds you a unique safety net. Now, people often say to me, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to be rich at 65. I want to be rich now. Well, it's very difficult to be rich now, all right, but sure as sure is you want some money when you retire. Okay, and retirement, again, that's a different subject, but it doesn't have to be at 65. And also, it's not exclusive that that's the only thing you're going to be doing because the next step will be to start a business, stroke, side hustle, so that you've got more money coming in. So you, you don't have to save or have fun. You can do the two together, but you don't have to do it in excess either side. That's yeah. the way I look at it. What's the biggest business investment you've made? I would say uh, probably around a quarter of a million, about a quarter of a million. This is all related to my model industry, um, but there's been lots of hundred-ish ones along the way. So it's very, very hard because some, some investments aren't just that initial investment. They are more investment because the thing's working and you want to accelerate it along. We did have a big investment for a European business and that's all went a bit wrong. So luckily I was able to pull whole investment out. I didn't actually lose on it but again I would have done a few weeks along the line so yeah there's, there's some big investments but most of the businesses and things I'm involved with have been very organic so you know it's not all about a quarter of a million pound investment it's not necessarily about a hundred thousand pound investment you know it's about growing something you know will work and an organic growth will last a long long time you know when you push something with too much money it can be a flash in the pan and you really don't want that when you've put a lot of money in. I'm sure a lot of people come to you and say, oh, it's too late for me to learn. It's too late for me to invest. It's too late for me to be better with my money. Do you think there's ever a point where it is too late? No, I think the time to start making yourself better is today. 
It's just like the tree analogy. The time to sit under the shade of a new tree, get it planted today because the sooner you'll be able to live under the shade. And also with investing, you know, the sooner you start sowing those seeds of dollars into investment accounts, the sooner you can take the fruit of the tree, which is the yield from that investment. You know, you just got to get started. I mean, there gets a point when you're going to have to put lump sums in, particularly into index funds and things like that. So once you get past 30, you know, you're going to have to start putting bigger amounts a month in and bigger lump sums to get the whole thing rolling. It's going to take 10 years for the whole system to start compounding for you. But the sooner you get started, the better. It's never too late to start anything, ever. But the options do change as you go through your life. You know, so as you get older, you might want to invest more in bonds because they're so much safer, they're much more secure. But realistically, no, get going, get started. There's nothing stopping you from getting started. And what about side hustles that people can do now? Well, people don't seem to like to get their hands dirty these days. So obviously those side hustles still exist. So you could go down that route. Um, But people love their computers nowadays, don't they? And they love their phones. So, you know, you could be an editor content creator you could be a content critic what's that well just you know we we don't have time necessarily or we don't see the problems or what people want to see within our videos you know they'll watch a video and they can critique it and then we can make it better they can tell us what they want us to do where they want us to go all that sort of thing and that can become a bigger job in itself because from that you can be you know you can analyse a whole business pretty much. So, again, it's starting as a side hustle, but looking how you can move it forward to becoming other things. You know, there's plenty out there that you can do from your laptop. And what about and thumbnail creators? I mean, you know, they're worth their weight because at the end of the day, the only reason people are clicking is, well, there's two reasons. They recognise you or your brand, but also that thumbnail, it is, that's the hit. So... Yeah, it's the most important part. And context, by the way, for people who aren't YouTube creators, a thumbnail is when you go onto the YouTube homepage, it's the graphic that you see to click the video. But I know some people who charge maybe like $300 per thumbnail. So we actually have two guys that compete and they have to win the best thumbnail. And the one we use... We don't pay the other guy. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. We do pay the other guy. Um, we pay them both a flat rate. But if we pick them, or whichever one we pick, they get a bonus because we're using their thumbnail. And uh, it works very well. They earn very well. They don't just work for us. So it's becoming an industry on its own. What's the one piece of advice that you give on TikTok or YouTube that is the most controversial? You have the most number of people saying, I disagree with you. I've said on various YouTubes that buying a house is actually a bad investment. And we get a lot of disagreement on that. And I understand why. And I must admit, from my parents, I was always very positive to buying your own real estate. The problem with buying your own real estate is it locks you into a trap. You've got a mortgage around your neck and you're having to pay that mortgage off. Now, there are ways to make it work. You buy a house... It's not for you. It's a house for you to rent out. Then your guys uh, renting it are going to be paying off your mortgage for you. Nothing wrong with that. You can house hack. Nothing wrong with that. You can buy a duplex or just, you know, section your house up so someone else is paying at least half your cost. Nothing wrong with that. But to think a house that you're going to buy and live in at 20, 25, 
is going to be an investment for you. It's not. And likewise, if you're not going to stay in it for more than seven years, it's going to be a cost. You might think you've sold it for more and you will sell it for more than you paid for it. But the cost involves with buying it and maintaining it within that seven-year period, you're going to actually physically lose money or lose value on your money during that time. So there's a lot of controversy about that, and I understand why. But when you really nail down the figures, it is true that buying in your 20s your own house to live in is probably not the best thing. Most of my followers will know that I've been expanding my team this year, but finding the right balance of experience and the specialized skills that I need has been tough. That's why I love Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And they do the hard work for you. So instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's powerful platform can help you streamline hiring with tools that find you matched candidates. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash Erica. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Erica. Just go to indeed.com slash Erica. Erica is always with a K and the link will also be in the show notes. Indeed.com slash Erica. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. In what cases do you think it is a good thing versus not a good thing? Well, certainly if you're going to rent it out and still live at home, I think there's a massive thing to live at home and stay with your parents as long as you possibly can. It's the cheapest living you'll ever have. And if you can afford to buy a house and rent it out while you're living with your parents, you are absolutely laughing big time, because that's the time you can put so much away. We always say to build your empire during your 20s. You know, you've almost sort of got to not give up on everything else. You know, take a little bit of going out. You know, you've got to enjoy yourself. It's not mutually exclusive, but you've got to work really, really hard to build your empire during your 20s. You're young, you can learn fast, you're energetic, you've got time on your hands. You know, get through life particularly if you're a young man for sure because you become a much more attractive person if you've got your foundations in place by the time you're 30 and you're earning decent money you're you're sorted aren't you and 
you will, I think, attract the women as opposed to be, you know, trying to attract them. You're, you, you, you're more attractive, I think, as a guy. You mentioned house hacking earlier. Yeah. Can you talk about that for people who don't know? Uh, well, house hacking is really when you buy a house and rent it off or um, subdivide it. You might, for example, buy a four-bedroom house and you might have four people renting rooms within it and communal areas. Now, there are some laws in the UK that make it a little bit more difficult, and I'm not sure how it works in the States. In the UK, if you're doing it on scale, it becomes a HMO. Um, so it's a house of multiple occupancy. But you can do it to a certain degree. If you're living there and you're renting out three rooms, there's absolutely no problem with that at all. It's just called lodgings. And uh, that is a really, really good way of earning a lot of money because you can cover all your costs, absolutely every one of them, with the, the three people that are in your house. The biggest mistake to do is get into dividing it absolutely equally. Because why should you? You've taken the risk. They haven't taken any risk. They can move in, they can move out any time. Set your price. If you've got three rooms that covers all your outgoings, all your costs, and then you've got money free to invest. And let's face it, rent and living accommodation is one of the biggest expenses after leaving home. Were you thinking a lot about doing house hacking and these things to save money when you were growing up? I think when you come from humble backgrounds like I did, you don't try to spend money. You don't earn money to spend money. You, you earn money to hopefully make money um, because, you know, it, it's hard earned. And when you've had nothing, it's, it's very, very hard to spend it. In fact, it actually becomes a problem because as you get more money, you still don't want to spend it. And I, I had quite a, an issue with that probably through all the way through to about 40, 45 that I would look at everything. I mean, even to this day, I'll buy a meal deal. You know, there might be a better sandwich that's not in the meal deal, but I'll probably still buy the meal deal because there's something in me that wants to keep hold of as much money as I can because it was very hard before. But there's definitely an advantage to spending a reasonable amount of money. And whatever your investments are earning you, that probably should be about the amount of money you're spending. You haven't actually got to take it out of your investments, take it out of your normal running money. Um, so, for example, if you're earning, I don't know, your investments are worth 10 million and you're earning 1 million and it's 8% growth, you should be spending about $80,000 a year. And with that $80,000 a year, you can better your life. You know, you can, you can take that better flight. You can take that better holiday. You can buy that nicer watch because it makes you feel good. You can have that suit made rather than taking it off the peg and feel good about it. And all those sort of things, it's been very gradual for me, probably from about 45, I've made the decision that every year I will literally spend more and I will enjoy my life each year that little bit more because I can. Now, whether or not I could have done that in my 20s, I'm not sure. I probably could have done. I still had fun, don't get me wrong. But I think you can spend a little bit more once you get a certain amount of money under your belt. It's very important to do that as well. Reward yourself. What do you think separates the people who watch your videos and follow the advice, become very successful versus the people who just don't take action on it? Well, there's, in my eyes, there's three types of people in this world. There are the drifters, there are the dreamers, and there's the doers. Now, the drifters are your paycheck-to-paycheck paycheck guys, and they will drift through life 
stumbling over their little issues, their setbacks, and then they'll get ahead, then get back, then get ahead, then get back. Basically just drifting through life. There's no plan. There's no desire. It's just, yeah, I'm here. I'm going to drift through life. And if that suits you, then that's fine. Then there's the dreamers. And I think most people are dreamers. Most people. Probably 80% of people at least are dreamers. They know what they would like. They know where they'd like to be. They know what they'd like to have. They know what they'd like to earn. You know, they know all these things. But what they're lacking is the knowledge of how to get there. And also, they're lacking the, the risk element or their, their risk tolerance is too low to take that action to, to get them on that path. So it's either they don't know how to get there or the risk is too high, perceived risk is too high. And then there's the doers. Now, the doers are dreamers that take it one step further. They educate themselves into how to get to where they want to get to. They're prepared to learn lessons along the way as well. And they will gradually better themselves getting to their destination. So I would say become a doer. You know, the, the worst thing you can do, I think, particularly in your 20s to your 30s, is not take some risk. If you become complacent and go, oh, I'm safer not taking a risk, I think you're actually taking more of a risk by not taking a risk. There's so many advantages out there. And generally speaking, if you take a risk, you'll end up even if it goes wrong. You don't generally lose a lot. If you leave things to make up their mind for you or for someone else to make the decision for you, I would say it's not going to be in your best interest. You, you've got to grasp it. And, and take that advantage and take that risk. Yeah. No, I like that. I remember when I was thinking about quitting my job as a corporate lawyer, I always, with every big decision, I go through and create a pros and cons list and just write out my thoughts. I write a letter to myself and think about it. And one of the things that I was thinking about there was my risk tolerance. And I thought, if I wait to do this for five years, I'll probably have kids by then, and then my risk tolerance would be much lower because I have literal human beings that are relying on me. So, of course, I don't want to just quit this stable, secure job and leave that to start my own business. So I do think you're right that in your 20s, early 30s, when you don't have people relying on you, it's probably the best time to take that risk. Risk gets harder. The, the less risk you take, the harder the risk gets. The longer you take to take some risk, the harder the risk gets. So you, eventually you are not going to take any. It's as simple as that. But once you get used to jumping, that leap of faith, funny enough, the next leap of faith is a little bit easier, isn't it? The next one after that's a bit easier. Then you'll have one where you trip a little bit and catch and go, <laughs> oh, phew, that could have gone wrong, but yeah, I've done it before, I'll do it again. So it's a very habit-forming. And that's, you know, what some people will do. The younger you can do it, the better. And the more time you've got to recover if it is a major mistake. And I don't mean go YOLO and all your money into cryptocurrency for sure. That is a bad, bad move. So, you know, there are risks, but, you know, calculate them a little bit. You know, and you've also got the other thing as well as you get older. People want to drag you back down. It's like the crab analogy. You put all the crabs in a bucket, you know, one tries to escape, the rest will pull them down. And society is very much like that. And I'm sure when you were leaving your law firm, they're probably saying, what are you doing? You've done all this, you know, university and law degree and everything. You're leaving? What are you doing? You're secure. You know, so they're trying to pull you down. And a lot of people don't want you to be successful. 
and that's part of it as well. So there's quite a lot of dynamics to taking risk and taping, taking leaps of faith. Yeah. No, I remember when I put in my two weeks notice on my law firm, there was one partner who pulled me aside and brought me into his office and said, you know, Erica, you're making a very big mistake. Like you're not going to be successful on your own. So what we'll do is you can retract your two weeks notice and we'll just pretend it never happened. Pretend you never put that notice in. And I just, I remember that because this was someone I looked up to at the law firm and it was just so hard to hear that he didn't believe in me. He didn't think that I was going to be successful on my own. But I bet you that person was very risk averse and would never take a leap of faith ever in their life. Probably. I mean, I always say that people are going to be more vocal about what they think you cannot do than what they think you can do. Because a lot of times they're projecting their own insecurities onto you. They're thinking, oh, I could never leave this stable job and try to do that. So I'm going to project this onto Erica. And once you've got that knowledge, you see, you can return to that job anyway. So your amount of perceived risk is actually probably less because if you wanted to return, you could. Obviously, you don't want to return. You don't need to return. <laughs> but if you needed to, you could. And that's also the thing about net worth being a, a thing that sort of grinds my gears a little bit because everyone talks about net worth and, and really it's, it's, it shouldn't be a thing. I, I understand why people do because they say, well, you're worth X amount, you're worth X amount, you must be better than him, blah, blah, blah. But realistically, a lottery winner could be worth $100 million. Somebody who would lucked out in the crypto could be worth $100 million. Ask them to repeat that, they won't. That amount of money can quickly fade away to nothing because they cannot repeat what they've done. They've gained no knowledge in creating that money. Whereas someone who's gone organically from the ground up is worth 10 million and learned all the knowledge and all the lessons of business along the way, they're better at 10 million net worth because not only could they repeat it, they're going to springboard from that to earn even more. So I do get annoyed at net worth. I mean, at the end of the day, if you do the same as everyone else, you're going to have the same as everyone else. That, that's without a doubt. And, you know, to have more, you've got to prepare to have more. And I always think about it, I've got a couple of friends, that's the way I say it anyway, that love surfing. And they, they were learning to surf. And John was all about this big wave, all the time, I'm going to ride this massive Narnie wave in one day. It's coming. That's what I'm looking for. You know, I can't be bothered to practice when the waves are small. What's the point? You know, I'm waiting for this right curler of a wave and I'm going to ride that baby all the way home. And um, Jed was completely different. He'd be out every single day. He'd earn money so he could surf. He didn't care if they were small waves, big waves, whatever. Well, that big wave came along. It was huge. And um, Jed jumped up on it and away he went. It was absolutely phenomenal. He's riding along. He's looking back for his mate and he'd fallen over, fallen off the wave that he'd waited years for it to come. And it's all about preparation. He'd prepared. He'd practised. He'd put in the little wins along the line. He'd got the knowledge all the way along. So when that big opportunity came, he took it and was able to handle it. The other guy couldn't. So it just shows you it's all about preparation. And business is very much like that. If you can keep preparing, learning all those little lessons. I mean, a lot of people say to me, they say, I can't go into business because I don't know everything I need to know. I go, really? You do surprise me. I never knew everything I needed to know either. But I learned it along the way. It's the school of hard knocks. You know, you'll learn lessons that you will never forget. 
as you go. No one's ready. You know, we're all winging it to a certain degree, all of us, you know, and we learn those lessons along the way. They're not fails. I, I hate failure. You know, the word failure is, is a wrong word, isn't it? Because when you fail, you've learned a lesson. That lesson could have cost you a hell of a lot more than you, should we say, lost in monetary terms, and you'll never forget it because you've experienced that lesson. So it's learning all those steps along the way so you're ready when the big times hit. For me, it was the crypto boom. It was the, the housing boom in 2008, I believe. And it was the dot-com bubble. You know, they are big waves. And when they hit and you're ready for them, boy, can you do well. But apparently from other people, that's luck. <laughs> How do you know then the difference between waiting to do something until it's perfect, which I feel like is waiting too long, versus jumping in underprepared? Well, there is a saying, isn't there? Fake it till you make it. Now, I don't agree with that. I think you should be doing enough preparation that you know that you can add that to your skill set. So, for example, if someone asks you to um, video a wedding, and you've done lots of weddings, uh, and I want you to edit it, but you've never edited, are you going to say, well, no, don't do that? Well, surely you're not going to say that because you've got the skills to be able to film it. You've then just got to learn about editing. So let's learn about editing and let's edit that video for them. Now we're a videographer and we're an editor. And the next one comes along and says, oh, I heard you videoed so-and-so's wedding and edited it. I'd like you to do ours. Yep, no problem. Oh, yeah, but I want some drone footage as well. All right. You go, sorry, I don't do drones. Well, you either get someone in or... You learn it and get your drone license and do some drone footage. All of a sudden, next one, you've got all three skills, haven't you? And how many have all three skills? Not very many. So that's what it's all about. It's all about that preparation. What do you wish that someone would have sat you down and told you about in your 20s that would have really accelerated your business or your financial growth? Invest more. The internet is coming. <laughs> and it's going to be absolutely huge. That, that, that actually, that would probably be the single best bit of advice I'd have got in my 20s. Someone has said to me, by the time you're 35, this thing called the internet will be here and you need to ride that baby as hard as you can. <laughs> that would have probably been the best advice I could have received about 35. I mean, I looked at it at the time, I went, yeah, you know, all this dot-com stuff. I, I rode a lovely bubble of investments during that time and got out sort of two weeks before that burst which is luck. That is luck. Um, I was buying a building and I thought, I need those funds to buy a building. I got them out and do you know what? I'd have had practically nothing had I not done that from those investments and I had enough to buy a big industrial unit, which was uh, really handy. Interesting. Yeah, I wish I would have had that foresight too. I recently learned about domain names and how expensive some of these domain names are. Absolutely. I bought erica.com. Yeah and paid an arm and a leg for it. But these people, basically what they did was as soon as the domain, you could buy domain names, they just bought like erica.com, mark.com, and all of these, and now they're selling them for thousands and thousands of dollars. Do you know what marktilbury.com cost? How much? Have a guess. $5,000. Well, I offered $1,000 for it and didn't get it. I offered $5,000 for it and I didn't get it. I offered $10,000 for it and I didn't get it. I then offered 10000 one last time with another name name that the guy who owned this one could have used for his business and he blocked me. I'm fed up with you, contacted me and blocked me. 
Oh my god. So I couldn't get it from him. Then he forgot to renew it. It went up for auction, $44. <laughs> oh my gosh. There you go. Wow. So preparation meets opportunity once again. I have to thank my son for that because uh, he kept on it. Um, but it's again, it's all about preparation, isn't it? Meeting that chance of luck. That's if we'd given incredible. up on it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on Instagram. My handle is Erica N. Kohlberg with my middle name there. And I've been trying to get Erica Kohlberg for a long time. But this lady who owns it, I asked and she blocked me. And then I'll, every time I have like a new assistant or something, I'll say, hey, please message this lady. She blocks everyone. So I don't think I'll get that. <laughs> no, it doesn't look like it. You just have to make sure when she renews that she does or doesn't and you're in there. <laughs> no, that's, that's great savings. What's some advice that you're giving your 25-year-old son now that you wish someone would have given you at 25? Well, first of all, I don't give my son any financial handouts. He gets zero money from me. So what Curtis does, and he's very, very smart, is he taps into any advice he can possibly get. And, of course, at 25 now, he's had this for years. So he's now finding new ways to invest. But certainly, I got him on that investment journey. I mean, I wanted him to buy a house because, as we said in earlier in the interview, you know, I thought buying a house for yourself is a great way to go. And now I'm, I'm still trying to get him to buy a house, but just to rent it out. I mean, he's happy to stay at home for as long as he can. And that's another piece of advice I gave him. Don't be in a hurry to get out. You know, you're more than welcome to stay for forever. Did I say forever? <laughs> so, you know, financial help, a lot of people think that he's getting handouts. He's never had a handout. I mean, we can even relate it back to when he got a job with Red Bull. He needed to have a laptop for that job. And he came to me and said, like, I need, to, need some money to buy this laptop. And I said, well, earn it then. You know, find a way. You know, I don't mind how you find that way, but there's a way you can find to have that money. And he did. He went to his nan and his nan lent it to him. But he paid, paid her back. But it's the same as going to a bank to get a bank loan. You know, you've got to think how you can make this happen independently. All the while you're getting handouts. All the while you're getting things for free. And you're not having to think about it. We're going back to the knowledge thing. You're not gaining any knowledge. You're just taking the easy route all the time. And to be honest, now he's starting to teach me some of the new ways and the new things. And that's important as well. You know, I turned 56 shortly. And, you know, most of my friends at 50 plus, they've shut off from learning. They're done. I mean, a lot of them were done when they left school or done when they finished learning their trade. They don't really want to learn anymore. Certainly at 50, they don't want to learn anymore. He keeps me up to date with everything that's going on. So he'll say, right, you've got to get into this, you've got to get into that. Let's have a look at this. You know, and, and I embrace that. Now, when I say I embrace it, I do like to see why I need to get involved in it and if it's working, then I will get into it. But um, when you look at, you know, most people... They do decide that education stops at a certain stage. And I think that's quite sad because as soon as you cut off from learning, everything becomes more difficult. So I've got a friend, for example, who says, I'm never going to do internet banking. Well, hello, you've got no option all of a sudden. Now it's very hard because you didn't get through the mix of learning it, getting the knowledge of how to do it. I know it sounds a very simple thing, but as people become older, they don't learn as quick. And it's very hard for youngsters sometimes, I think, to understand that. You know, as you get older, you'll learn slower, you'll, you'll take more time to do different things. But as long as you do keep learning, 
you'll keep progressing. And I actually enjoy it. I love it. It's like a kick up the backside all the time, <laughs> isn't it? There's always more to learn. And the saying, the more you learn, the more you know you don't know. Get stronger and stronger and stronger. And the more you want to learn. What is the single best purchase someone can make in their 20s? Well, there are a lot of great purchases, but probably the most fun best purchase you can do is buying an airline ticket. I mean, I've been to so many places um, just simply by buying an airline ticket to California. I, I took a trip with the wife there. I actually got the ticket for free on my points from my credit card. And um, we flew into LAX. We traveled up the coast road to San Francisco. I thought, you know what, I'm going to drop into someone I know there that's got a model shop. From that little ticket... I signed a deal to represent his products in the UK and he helped me structure a B2B business. I then, a few years later, I thought, do you know what? It's all happening in China. You know, everyone says, oh, don't go, it's horrible. You won't understand the language. You won't be able to get about. I thought, no, 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 let's, let's go. So we bought a ticket to go to Shanghai. My friend made me some notes up and it said on there, give this to the taxi driver and it was all in Chinese characters. You know, I could have ended up anywhere. But... It all worked out. I found the hotel, I found the convention centre, had a brilliant meeting, had met all these people. And what a lot of people don't realise, particularly in the modern world, that they can do it all over email. Of course they can. They can talk on Zoom. There's no loyalty to that. You know, they'll promise you anything you want to hear. You know, will you sell only to me? Yeah, 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 we'll sell this only to you in orange. <laughs> you know, so everyone else gets all the other colours or whatever it happens to be. When you go and meet people, and I have a saying that my son cringes at, but it's press the flesh. You know, you, you greet them, you shake their hand. There's a, a loyal bond there that when they promise you something, it will be a promise. You know, politicians don't tap you on the shoulder or shake your hand for any other reason than they're making a contract with you. And when they do that, they've secured your vote. And you should do that within business, you know, and within friendships, we do it all the time. I and mean, we get loyal friends, don't we, from that? So within business, it's very important. I think you should get out there, meet the people you want to do business with, meet people you didn't know you were going to do business with, and they know other people that you didn't know, that they know that you're also going to be doing <laughs> business with. So, you know, one, one thing leads to another, and a, a plane ticket, even to somewhere you just want to go to, just to experience the culture, I think it, it makes you a better person. It broadens your horizons. So uh, get out there. It all starts with a plane ticket. It certainly does. <laughs> so the podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Mark Taught Me. So what do you want people to be able to walk away saying, Mark Tilbury taught me this? I'd like to say that they taught me I should take some risk. I should invest. I should look to my future. I've got more time on my hands than I thought I had. I watch too much Netflix. I probably watch too much sport. I should get out. I should earn some money. I can better my life. Everyone can better their life. And obviously, watch Mark Tilbury on YouTube because there are a lot more lessons to learn. I love that perfect ending. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No worries. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.